0: The American people voted for divided government. The Democrats have gained the majority in the House of Representatives. There are many new faces in Washington, D.C., each hoping to change the way things get done. Will change emerge, or will gridlock, partisanship, and deep division drive the next two years? Utah's Congressman-elect Ben McAdams is touting a new kind of conversation. He shares his vision for a different kind of Congress on this week's episode of Therefore What. Therefore, what is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers challenges you in the status quo explores timely topics and timeless principles and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore, what? We are very pleased today to be joined by the fourth congressional congressman elect Ben McAdams. Uh, sir, thanks for joining us great, today. Great to be with you, Boyd. Thanks for having me on. Well, you, you've been through a uh, knockdown, drag out, very hard fought campaign, as all campaigns are. Uh, in your very brief moment to exhale, uh, how, are, how have things been going just over the last few days?
1: You know, it has been a—it's been a, like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, you know, and campaigns are about differences. I think that's—that's that's the way it's intended. It's a competition of ideas. But governing, I think, is a lot different. Governing is about what do we have in common? Where can we come together? And so, you know, I—they called my race two days before Thanksgiving, and so it's just been, uh, you know, a. a uh, running pretty quickly since then to start thinking about wrapping up stuff at the county you know it's a busy time at the county with the year end and budget and everything so I've still got to get that job done and, and work hard through the end and then starting to think about what transition into a new mayoral office looks like or a new congressional <laughs> office I should say That's yeah. right.
0: you're, you're governing at both ends yeah. of the uh, continent right yeah. now and uh, still not
1: sleeping the, cam- <laughs> the, the time put in per day hasn't, hasn't ramped down yet I don't know if it ever will
0: <laughs> yeah I'm not uh, not banking on the uh, hours going lower yeah. uh, anytime soon well, as, as you look back at the at the race, uh, I want to do just a, a quick look back because I really want to uh, have the chance to really look forward and to see what, what next looks like. Uh, elections are about next, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's really where you are. But looking back uh, to the campaign, in terms of themes that you talked about, uh, what are the one or two things from the campaign that you're most excited to get going on? The campaign is always kind of the, you're talking about it, talking about it, now you get to govern and do. What's top of the agenda?
1: You know, I think first and foremost is just the style of leadership I'm tired of a broken dysfunctional gridlocked Washington and you know I think it seems you know I've never been really in Washington uh, so I don't know but my perception as someone in Utah that Washington the election seems to be about getting revenge and if you if one party takes power then we get revenge on the other party and then it turns around and you know and my perspective is just very different I'm a Democrat in Utah I have never accomplished anything without a Republican willing to work with me and so you know the way I'm looking at it isn't getting revenge at the other party. It's now I'm in the majority, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat the minority like I was treated in Utah. And I have great friends like, you know, Governor Herbert, Senator Bramble, who said, look, even though you're a Democrat and we don't need your vote, come sit down at the table. We want to talk to you about education, about transportation, about different things. You know, Stuart Adams has been a good friend of mine. And so when I go into Washington, I think, okay, now for the first time in my political career, I'm part of the majority. I'm going to treat the minority like the minority treated me in Utah.
0: Yeah, that's a really different kind of conversation for Washington. I know it's, uh, it's one that Senator Lee has really worked on in terms of this, let's talk about it style as he's related to things like criminal justice reform and some things where he has some some very interesting uh, combinations. Uh, whether he's working with Cory Booker or uh, Bernie Sanders on some things, uh, it's a
1: different kind of conversation. Yeah, and one of the first calls I got after the, the race was in over was from Senator Lee, who said, you know, we talked a little bit about his work on criminal justice reform, and you know, I think I can bring a perspective to that from the local level and how it's implemented on the local level. Some of the stuff that we've done uh, with homelessness and operation rio grande and opioid crisis just a real practical on the ground perspective and and mix that with the federal you know, nationwide perspective that Senator Lee has. And I think there are opportunities to work together. Yeah. Uh, You you mentioned
0: the the local experience and just how important that is. Uh, We've had conversations in the past about federalism and about how do you get that governing closest to the people. So now you're moving from this very hands on, close to the people mayor uh, position to now you're dealing with things at the federal level. How is your experience, your federalism experience at the mayor level going to impact how you approach Washington, D.C.?
1: You know, it's interesting. I was part of a coalition of mayors who um, talked about federalism, you know, from the from the left and, and somewhat. I, you know, I'm center left. But uh, talking about, a, you know, the the rise of the cities and, and allowing innovation at the local level and, uh, you know, some of the work I've worked with the Brookings Institution and Bruce Katz at Brookings, who really is a proponent of metro innovation and that problems are being solved at the metro level. And I still think there's a role for a federal government in there, but it's very deferential and empowering of local ideas. Uh, you know, we've seen this in you whether it's, you know, whether we're talking about arts or local zoning, I'm the mayor and there are 18 cities within my jurisdiction and each city is different and they're going to bring a different approach to a problem. They're going to take a different vision for their municipality. And I've learned as the mayor of Salt Lake County to empower that. That's a strength to have 18 different views and then try and forge that into a a unifying uh, approach that is diverse and, and there's individualization. And and I think we can, I'd like to see a federal government like that, that there are there have to be some federal issues like a federal highway system or a federal aviation administration there are things that you need uniformity but also recognize that states and localities metros bring a lot of value and and we just need to trust them and allow and recognize that they're going to be different from metro to metro sure. and and one metro solution may not be something that i like but it's going to be work work for that community so federalism is something that that i think is important and a federal government that allows local innovation and problem solving
0: we've for many years, Utah sort of has this reputation in Washington of always punching above its weight, that there's really an outsized influence. Uh, part of that, I think, is uh, I always just refer to it as the Utah model in terms of how we get things done, how we have conversations and, and so on. Uh, share with us a little bit some of your lessons learned as it relates to the opioid crisis. You mentioned that a moment ago. Uh, what did you learn out of that? And, and what do you hope your colleagues in Washington can learn in terms of how do we actually attack that? That kind of problem. Well,
1: one of the things the perspective of a mayor is mayors don't have the luxury of, of debating and gridlocking and waiting to the next election. Like a problem's going to get solved or is it not going to get solved, but it's it's in my hands and it's going to blow up in my face. I'm holding the I'm holding the time. You bomb. have it. Yeah. yeah. There's, <laughs> n- there's nobody else that's going to do it. And so, you know, that, that kind of approach is also there's some urgency. Like, okay, people, we, we can disagree for uh, you know a few minutes, and then we have got to find a way. Like, what's the common ground? How do we move forward? And you know, I hope not to lose that. I'm going to take that perspective perspective to Washington this up and recognize that, you know, as Washington fights, mayors across the country are sitting, waiting for a solution. And oftentimes they're innovating and inventing solutions in the absence of Washington, but it's not okay to just, you know, to punt. And so the opioid crisis is a great example. You know, there are national policies that that need to be addressed as it relates to an opioid crisis and failure to address that. And I, again, will point at both parties for Mm -hmm. failing to take action. Right. What I see as a mayor is families that are torn apart, um, children who die of an overdose, communities that are uh, riddled with crime and you know fear in the communities. The the gridlock and inaction has a real cost on the streets of America and the streets here in Utah, and we gotta we gotta find a solution. So
0: how do you think we do that from a a Washington? I I think for generations now we've had both parties are, are to blame equally. I think in terms of really painting this picture that if if there is a big problem like opioids that it, somehow it has to waltz out of Washington, D.C. to really solve it. What, what is going to be your message to your colleagues on both sides of the
1: aisle? Uh, I think problems like an opioid crisis and many others, they're complex and solutions are complex. Uh, the opioid crisis, you know, um, You know, I want to acknowledge there are people who make bad decisions and they need to be held accountable for bad decisions. But an opioid crisis is much more than that as well. There's addiction. Some of that is behavioral, mental, biological, um, bad luck. You, know, if you I know, so many people I've heard who have just had an accident yeah. and then Surgery. been prescribed a prescription yeah. drug, yeah, and, uh, and then it leads to an addiction. So certainly bad choices for which people need to be responsible for their choices, but also bad luck and, and biology and other things. And the solutions are, are in Utah are going to be different maybe than the solutions in another part of the country. You know, we had a, a very local approach with Operation Rio Grande, uh, and that was both, exp- you know, we took advantage of some federal opportunities to expand Medicaid, and we got a waiver through HHS, Health and Human mm-hmm. Service, to get that waiver that allowed us to custom tailor a, a Utah approach, um, and there were some some deviations that we took from the federal. We got waivers to, to uh, you know to move some of these deviations from the federal strict protocol forward, and thankfully it took some time, but thankfully we were able to get that. It also so it's treatment it's. You know consequences, there's a criminal justice component to it, but it's also recognizing that we can't just lock people up and throw away the key. they're not going to get better, and it's going to cost a lot of money to to throw them in prison for years. There might be a better way to put them into treatment and, and so it really was a, a tailored to Utah approach. I think nationally we can learn some lessons from what's happened in Utah, um, but allowing customization and differentiation across the country of of what each locality needs, um, learning from best practices, but allowing some innovation and departure from a norm, uh, you know, that we don't just have one federal approach. So we had federal funding for the Medicaid expansion that Utah approved, but then Utah was able to do it in a way that suited our needs. Uh, I want to go back to the uh, criminal
0: justice reform. You said you talked to Senator Lee about uh, that on uh, election, (laughs) when the election was called. That obviously is. A, a big push right now in in Washington, uh, but you also had to deal with that as a mayor. Uh, describe that, and, and how was that going to influence what you do back in Washington? Yeah, we,
1: I mean, we took we had some criminal justice reform at the state and, and local level. Uh, we called it the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, uh, where we looked at you know we looked at the cost of incarcerating people, and in, so the, at federal level, it's federal crimes and federal incarceration. We looked at it from the state level in Utah uh, about you know state crimes. And, and state prison. And we looked at what that's costing us as a taxpayer to take somebody and put them in a, a jail cell, uh, a prison cell for years for something, as, something like drug possession. They were in possession of a controlled substance. It was probably a, a third or a fourth offense. They go to prison. They're there for five years. Um, maybe they were even selling small amounts of drugs and they're in prison for five years. We calculate the cost of that. It is enormous. And then we, we calculate the cost of the counterfactual. If you assume that there are, there are bad people, and there are bad people who need sure. to go to jail. But if what it, some of them are good people who had you know, a surgery, an addiction, a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And if we can get them into treatment to help them to get their life back on track, um, that prison sentence not only costs the taxpayers a lot of money, it destroys families, yeah. kids that are raised without a parent. Communities. Communities, yeah. yeah. And if we said the counterfactual is we get somebody into treatment for a year, and um, and some case management. And that. That's going to have a cost, but it's actually less than incarcerating them. And they're raising their own kids. They're paying taxes. They're working at a job. And that, you know, the human dignity and the stopping the cycle of poverty and addiction and crime that's intergenerational um, has a benefit. And so what we did, we the Justice Reinvestment Initiative passed. Um, it, it didn't initially come with the funding for treatment that had been talked about. So I, I pushed and Re- Speaker Hughes and I had some words with each other and arguments. He, he's actually a dear friend of mine, and I think that friendship enables us to argue about policy, mm-hmm. um, and it's not personal. Which but good. It's, yeah, yeah, it's really good. and uh, And he followed through. We got some funding that we needed for treatment, and now there are people who hundreds of people who are participating in treatment who are sober. Who work, have jobs, and are raising their kids, and uh, and it's working. And you know, it's not a hundred percent success. I think at the last count, we had about seventy percent of the people enrolled in our drug court were still there. Seventy percent is pretty That's a good successful. Sense. Yeah, great savings for the taxpayer. And seventy percent of families that would have not had one of their members in the family now have a parent or a caregiver, or somebody who's in that family structure, and and it's working. And um and I want to, you know, seventy percent is great. It's also not good enough. I want to make that seventy five or eighty. And I think if we bring in, you know, the experts, the behavioral scientists and the universities and the and just figure out how to how how what is addiction? How does it work? How can we improve it? Success rates and And where do we go from there? So that's criminal justice reform for me. It has to be bipartisan. Operation Rio Grande was bipartisan. You know, it was the Democrat arguing for compassion. And this is a a gross oversimplification for my friend Greg Hughes. But, you know, to grossly oversimplify, it's the Republican saying, lock him up and throw away the key. And the Democrat saying, treat him and get him into treatment. And at the end of the day, it was there are consequences for your decisions to commit a crime. But there also is mercy if you're willing to turn your life around. There's also a treatment bed. And the Democrat, because Greg and I talk to each other, Republican and Democrat, arguing and talking, arguing constructively and talking to each other, we came up with a solution that I think the treatment alone wouldn't have worked. People would have said, it's too easy. There had to be the consequence for bad decisions. But just locking people up wouldn't have worked either. So we came up with an approach that was a hybrid Republican-Democratic approach, that I think is better than either one of us would have come up with individually.
0: Yeah, I I think uh, rejecting those false arguments, that there's just a binary choice and uh, really understanding that compassion and the rule of law are, are compatible principles. Yes. Uh, and so whether that's dealing with addiction and, and the opioid crisis or what's happening on the border, right. compassion and rule of law are compatible. And when we set aside the, the deep partisan stuff, uh, we can usually get to a better solution. I think that's right. So, so as you look at applying that to Washington now, uh, as you know, I've been an equal opportunity offender of both the yeah. left and the right <laughs> uh, when it comes to a lot of what happens in Washington, because so often it is the the, the fake fight and the false choice yeah. uh, that tends to be very political Political, raises a lot of money for a a lot of outside groups and organizations, but usually keeps us a safe distance from having the conversation to get to the solutions. Uh, Knowing what you're walking into uh, back in in D.C. in terms of some of that partisan divide that really I don't think represents the 4th District or the country for that matter, uh, what's your mindset rolling
1: into some of those battles you know that are are coming very soon? They've already come. I haven't even, you know, they say that uh, you get sworn in and then you get sworn out that um, <laughs> that's not even they're not even doing that right sworn at first yeah, I'm right? sworn at first <laughs> and I'm not even sworn in yet um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've always thought, like, I need to make the decision that I think is in accordance with my conscience, in accordance with the district that I represent, and we'll see where the, you know, and we'll let that, the chips fall where they may. And, uh, you know, it's already, I, I joke, but it's already, you know, leadership elections. Right. And I made a pledge uh, that I would not vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. And I, I honestly and sincerely do believe that Turnover is a good thing. New ideas and fresh faces is a good thing. And she's been the leader of the Democrats in Congress for 14 years. So I I said I'm not going to vote for her for leader. I also think that that is um, reflective of the district that I was elected to represent. They want new ideas, they want new leadership. So, you know, people are saying, well, if you don't vote for her, you're going to be punished, you're not going to get the committees you want, and that. And I just think that's. I'm not going to buy into that game of what's in it for me and how I'll cast my vote if there's something in it for me. I need to make the decision that is in accordance with my conscience and in accordance with the district that I represent. We'll see where it takes us. Uh, I think there
0: is this emerging group that I, I have had a lot of hope in over the last few years. I, I call them the balls and strikes brigade, yeah. the people who are just going to call balls and strikes. And and there's some great ones on both. I mean, I think the country is a center left, center right country. Uh, and I do think we let those loud and strident voices at the extremes uh, rule too much, raise too much money and, and have too much power uh, because their power is all predicated on convincing us we're too divided yeah. uh, to, yeah. to deal with anything. And so this balls and strikes brigade that can go to their leadership when the leadership is right and say, I'm with you, I'll go to bat, I'm going to really go after this, or to be able to go and say, hey, I'm, I'm not with you on this, and I'm, I'm not going to vote with you on this uh, for these reasons. And uh, to me, that's that's what gives me hope in Washington for the future, is if we can develop a real balls and strikes brigade on both the center left and center right, uh, I think that's where there's real hope for actually governing in a way that will reflect What is happening in in the rest of America?
1: I I think so. I hope so. Um, It's, you know, being in Congress, I don't think is that great of a job. You commute, you're away from your family, you're, you know. Um, So for me, I've said, if I can't be authentic to who I am and do do something that I think is adding value to the country— it was not worth doing. And um, and I was really—it was refreshing. So I went back to the first week of orientation. They have another week of orientation coming up. But in that first week, at first I was a little bit disappointed because you get all together, Republicans and Democrats, all of the new co- new incoming members of Congress, and about a half hour into it, they split you into Republicans and Democrats. And the Democrats go through one orientation and the Republicans another. And I was a little bit disappointed with that. But it was like on the second day that we were— I was with some of the newly elected Democrats. And one woman said— you know, I met on the first day a Republican who was elected, and, I, and we've been texting and having conversations, and I really think we need to at some point reach out to them and talk about, you know, we have, what we have in common as incoming members of Congress and what we want to work on together, and that was really fr- refreshing. I think that there's a new crop of people elected in this election like me. You know, I feel I'm, I was happy to see that I'm not alone. There are people who want to reach out, reach across the aisle, realize there's value in somebody's perspective that opposes my perspective or disagrees with my perspective and we want to talk to them. And so I really, I'm optimistic too. I think there are people who are there to call balls and strikes. And if it costs you a committee assignment or something, so be it. Life's too short to do to do something just for somebody else. But I'm here for the country, for the district that I represent, and uh, and we'll see where it takes us. But I, I think we need more people like that in Washington. Definitely. So
0: as you're, you're in the middle of this drink out of a fire hose uh, process, staffing an office in the district, an office in D.C., uh, and a host of other worries and in terms of family and commutes and, and all of those, uh, what are some of the other things that are keeping you up at night or
1: things that you're starting to worry about, maybe a little differently than you have in the past? You know, I think, I mean, what I'm, what's on the forefront of my, so my race was called the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And so Wednesday was kind of a media circus where I was doing doing interviews on that. Then it was Thanksgiving. So I haven't really had much time right now to start uh, start doing the really the practical stuff yeah. of setting up an office and figuring out where I'm going to live and... Some of that, so that's that's keeping me up a little bit. As I'm still trying to think on the on the higher level of what policies and, and where do I hit the ground running on a policy level. I'm thinking also practically. But one of the things, and I guess coming back to the beginning of the interview, so I, I've gone. I'm, I'm the mayor of Salt Lake County until January second, and there's a lot to do there. But you know, we were, we just had a press conference uh, along the Jordan River. Uh, near where the new Homeless Resource Center is going to be. And one of the things I've thought that's f- kept me up a lot at night as mayor is the transition to this new model of homeless homeless services. How do we ensure that that transition really lives up to the vision that we've put forward? How do we ensure that it lifts up the neighborhoods, not drags down the neighborhoods where these services are? And um, I worry about moving into, so Congress in its nature is more, you know, as you say, 10,000 feet. It's probably 100,000 feet. Um, but a lot of the things that I care about are in the weeds in here right here in Utah. It's transportation gridlock. It's health care for people and, and the criminal justice reform as it translates to Utah, homeless services. So one of the things I'm, I'm thinking a lot about is how do we, how do we bridge that? That there's not a, a chasm between local government and local needs and the federal government that is completely disconnected from that. And can I play a role? Is there an innovative approach to being a representative that is still doesn't lose touch with the local district and just focus on these 100,000-foot issues in a way that's completely disconnected from the in-the-weeds, how that translates to the weeds and what's happening on the ground in Utah. And, uh, you know, it's probably on my mind right now because I have a foot in two different worlds, one that's yeah. in the weeds and one's at 100,000 feet. But I want to continue to contribute. You know, I got, I'm, I'm involved in public service because I care about my community and about Utah. And how do I maintain that connection and that service at the very local level, let's talk about that connection for a minute. Uh, I, I think what's happening in the in the country
0: and and many polls kind of play this out that uh, the people in the center left and center right are kind of disengaging from the process a bit. Uh, a lot of the national polling where you know they'll come out and say that the country is so divided. Well, the the people on the far left and the people on the far right are really divided. Uh, but a lot of those people in the center left and center right aren't even taking polls anymore, let alone you know showing up to vote. Uh, so what are you going to do do uh, as part of that staying connected uh, to give those people uh, some hope and a a reason to to re-engage in the process in a a big way? I I read one thing this morning that said people would rather give blood than be involved in a political campaign or or any of those kinds of things. So how are you going to help people say, hey, the water's okay,
1: (laughs) and we need your voice? I think, I I mean, there's a lot of challenges with like to say, take social media right now. It, It brings out the worst of us. It also can bring out the best in us you know, I think one of the things that I think some people are figuring out is to be just more authentic and transparent. I hope, I hope as a member of Congress to help people see I'm not really any different. I'm still the kid who grew up in West Bountiful and went to the U and, you know, I'm in a position to serve right now, but I want them to see the authenticity and that it is accessible. And, uh, you know, when I was campaigning, a lot of people asked me if I, if elected, would you hold town hall meetings? And I said, well, as the mayor, a town hall meeting for me is Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and the trip to the grocery store and, you know. Yeah. And so I think that kind of accessibility, I hope to maintain that people realize that they can come and talk to me. I'm going to make bad decisions that I'm going to regret. You know, sometimes you don't get everything right. I'm also going to make decisions that I'm 100% convinced are the right decision, and people are going to hate it. And I want I want to be transparent let people engage with that. You know, as, as the mayor, I I'd go to a town hall meeting and sit on the stage for four hours and get yelled at. And I just thought that's part of my job. I don't like it, but that's part of my job. And I want people to see that if I'm, as I serve in Congress, that um, yell at me for my bad decisions and hopefully send me a thank you email when I do a good one, you know. But um, I think one of the things that hopefully people can re-engage is that they, maybe social media can, in addition to bringing out, out the worst in us, it can also bring out the best in us and people can feel a new level of personal engagement with their government and realize that we do weigh decisions and input does matter and I'm going to, you know, listen to them and, and that's going to incorporate into the decision that I make. Coming down the home stretch here, I have just uh, two more questions for you and in our, in our
0: conclusion. So it's always the fake finish, so don't, sure. don't think you're done yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, first question is uh, is looking at, at 2019. Uh, so let's just say a, about a year from now, how, could, how would you finish the sentence, 2019 will be successful if? What does that look like for you?
1: You know, um, 2019 will be successful if we have addressed comprehensive immigration reform and addressed an, an infrastructure package for our country. You know, there's a a young man who volunteered for my campaign over the summer. Uh, He came to the United States at the age of five, brought here by his parents. This is the only country he's ever known. And he uh, is a student, at the university, a chemical engineering student at the University of Utah. He is somebody we want in our workforce. And he said he doesn't know if six months from now he'll be able to, you know, nobody's going to hire him because they don't know if six months from now he'll have the authorization to work. We've got to fix that. And, you know, I think, as you said, it's, it's rule of law and compassion. Yeah. But we've got to figure out that balance because our country is being harmed because of the partisanship and the false dichotomy. Let's come together and find an answer. Um, I also know that you know in a district like the Fourth congressional district that 's growing so fast, investment in infrastructure for a growing population and also investment in infrastructure for aging infrastructure is critically important. Our country needs that uh, there are ideas on the table they are- people who are willing to support you know uh, proposals I think the president's open to it we got to just find a way to do this stuff and move it forward
0: okay so I've, I've got a, uh, a wall of fame uh, baseball's signed not by famous baseball players uh, but by people who've made a difference in my life so uh, a coach a third grade teacher an author uh, if you were starting your wall of fame, Who's who's one of the
1: first people you would have sign a baseball? Who's had a, an impact on you and why? You know, I uh, my first my mother. Um, my mother raised us as a single mother. You know, they, my, my parents were married for much of that time, but she was really uh, carried the, the burden of the family. She was a school teacher, and you know, everything that we were a lower to middle income family. Everything who I am today, I really owe to her. You know, she was a school teacher, so she taught me a love of reading and learning, and you know, to care about other people. And she passed away a few years ago. Uh, it was a couple of years after I was elected mayor. She passed away. Um, I think really who I am today, I owe in large part to her. So that'd be the first signature I'd get.
0: Therefore what?
1: The, the last question, this is
0: our last segment of the program. We call it Therefore What for a reason. <laughs> so people have been listening for about 25 minutes now. Uh, you've gone through this big campaign. You've won an election. You're, you're poised now to to step in as a member of Congress. Uh, what's, what's the Therefore What? The people who've been listening to this podcast, what do you hope they think different? What do you hope they do different as a result?
1: You know, I think people voted for me. You know, I've been mayor for six years and a lot of people voted for me based on my record as mayor, but some people voted for me because I'm a Democrat. Some people voted for me because uh, I'm—voted against me because I'm a Democrat. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I think—I hope people see that there's value in having Utah— represented in, in both the Republican and Democratic caucus, and, uh, and that, that there's value in that. And there may sometimes, the Democrats are going to disagree with me sometimes, the Republicans are going to agree or disagree with me sometimes, but uh, therefore, um, I'm, I'm on their team and welcome their feedback and hope to earn their support. Fantastic. Mayor Ben McAdams, soon to be
0: Congressman Ben McAdams, thanks for joining us on Therefore What today. Thank you. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on deseretnews.com podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?